I'm grateful for the opportunity that we can gather each week, that we can join together over God's word. So as we enter this time of worship, last week we had the privilege of celebrating the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. My desire today is that once again I want to place before you the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we may have our minds pushed more towards him and that our hearts would become more aligned with him. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. And I want to bring to you a message that I've simply titled, The Battle for the Christian Mind. I want to read to you from Colossians chapter 3, beginning verse 1, but I want to go all the way through verse 17, because I want us to see context and get repetition of where we're going over the next several weeks. And so I ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In, those, in these you too once walked, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all. And in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, put all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Our Father God, we come before you in this time in your word, Lord. Father, we will be challenged this morning, and Father, I pray that we would not be offended, but we'd be examined, not provoked, but persuaded by your truth, and not condemned, but convicted, Lord. Father, incline our hearts towards you, incline our minds towards you, help us to fixate on you this morning. 
And so, Father, we just commit this time to you, asking for your spirit to work in us and to soften us. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The greatest threat to the gospel is not oppression or suppression. The greatest threat to the gospel is not persecution or domination. The greatest threat to the gospel is not fascism or communism or totalitarianism or authoritarianism. The greatest threat to the gospel is us. The greatest threat of the gospel to the gospel is us, not because we've set ourselves against the gospel, but because I think we too often fail to set ourselves for the gospel. We don't set ourselves for the gospel by the hypocrisy in our lives. Living one way in front of the church and living another way in front of the culture. We don't set ourselves for the gospel when we allow our judgment of people to supplant God's judgment of people. We don't set ourselves for the gospel when we live more in immunity than in indemnity. What do I mean by that? I mean simply this. That we've denied the gospel when we live so much in the forgiveness of God that we think ourselves immune to God's judgment. As in, God has forgiven me, therefore I can do whatever I want. The opposite of that, though, is just as bad. We don't, we don't set ourselves for the gospel when we live more in condemnation than conviction. Meaning that we live more in God's finding guilt that we overlook God's freedom and grace. The greatest threat to the gospel is not when the secular world doesn't live in the gospel. The greatest threat to the gospel is when professing believers don't live in the gospel. When we fail to be captivated by Christ, we allow ourselves to be captivated by the culture. When we fail to take our thoughts captive to Christ, we allow our thoughts to be captive to corruption. And the result is that we are more conformed than transformed. Our service to the Lord is tied to our sacrifice for the Lord. We saw that in our scripture reading this morning. Noting the first two verses of Romans chapter 12, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God that is good and acceptable and perfect. The reading of that text goes on into verses 3 through 8 in explaining what sacrifice is by explaining service, specifically service within the body of Christ for Christ. These verses tie together both the head and the heart attitudes, calling upon believers to be transformed by the renewal of their mind and for that to be shown by their heart towards God. That is to say, then, to live a transformed life, one must have a transformed heart. And to have a transformed heart, one must have a transformed mind. The same connections are found in our text this morning. Found in Colossians chapter 3, and just as Paul has done in Romans chapter 12, we will see here in our text that Paul once again connects the heart and the head. 
calling upon believers to live a transformed life. In a typical fashion, Paul has spent the first half of this letter outlining the authenticity of theology. And now we transition here, coming from verse, verse chapters 1 and 2 to chapters 3 and 4, to see the application of that theology. In all of chapter 2, Paul has elevated the Lord Jesus Christ. He's placed him at the center of the Christian life. He definitively, definitively places Christ before us and before his readers. And he says, this is who Christ is. And this is who you are in Christ. That's what we see in chapter 2. And what we've seen is that we have died with him. We have been buried with him. And now we are to be resurrected with him. And therefore, in light of this resurrection and ours, this is how we are to live in him. And so I want you to note first the Christian association in verse 1. Our text this morning begins, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Who you are in Christ is who you are in life. It is not uncommon for people to be defined by their associations. A person's position in the workforce often is used to determine that person's prestige in society. The groups and individuals that chooses to associate with determines that person's standing. And the friends surrounding a person are used to evaluate a person's reputation. We may agree or disagree with the appropriateness of evaluating people based on their associations. But most of us, most people in general, will surround themselves with people who are just like them. And so this assessment is not entirely wrong. Even more, by nature, we are imitators. And we will imitate those people around us. We see this in families as a son mirrors his father or as a daughter imitates her mother. It's unsurprising then when Paul writes, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. Because he knows that people will mimic one another. And he's not calling so much for people to imitate him as much as he's trying to emphasize they need to imitate Christ. Behind this call is the understanding that those who spend time with Christ will indeed look like Christ. If any individual then is to have an influence for Christ, that person must be influenced by Christ. The only association important to a believer is his association with Christ. No other affiliation carries as much significance in a believer's life than the affiliation with Christ. The life of a believer begins by associating with Christ. And that's where Paul begins this text with the Colossians, saying, if you have been raised with Christ, or rather, it says, since you have been raised with Christ in the original text, meaning that once you've been buried with Christ in verse 12 of the previous chapter, Colossians chapter 2, now Paul brings that entire cycle from death and burial with Christ to now being resurrected, being raised with Christ in verse 1 of chapter 3. 
What follows from this phrase now is not merely the symbolic participation in Christ's death through baptism, but now Paul is tying one's association with Christ to a pattern of life. And we see that in the following verses after our text, beginning in verse 5, put away this, and then later on, put on this. He's calling us to a lifestyle and calling the Colossians to a lifestyle. From this forward, verse forward, through the end of Colossians and chapters 3 and 4, we see a complete change in lifestyle, one that conforms to a person's association with Christ. A believer who is associated with Christ then will begin to act like Christ. Paul's already made this connection in Galatians 2.20. He writes to them about himself and says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live by faith in the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. He writes of his own association with Christ. And he identifies himself with Christ's crucifixion in that text. Elsewhere, he notes that he is put to death. He's crucified the things of the flesh. And instead, he is now raised with Christ in new life. And so as Paul preaches this association with Christ as a lifestyle in Christ, he's already done that himself. Where does such a lifestyle begin? How is it that one begins to conform to Christ-likeness? by seeking the things above. Literally, that phrase means to set your heart on. Webster's Dictionary would tell you to set your heart on something is simply to want something very much. But such a definition fails to capture the magnitude and the intensity behind this phrase. It's more than merely desiring to have something. It's wanting something so much that a person is consumed by it. Most of us can either remember ourselves as children or can point to our own children and appoint in their lives when they may have been captivated by something in particular, probably a toy or something. And they desire it so much they're willing to sacrifice their own time and energy, trying to earn money to get this one toy so that they can go purchase it. It's incredible what a child can do if he or she wants something desperately enough. But that principle is not only true for children. It's true for adults. Some will so desire a particular career, they will invest hours upon hours just trying to learn that career. And most people will even invest money in schooling to keep doing this. It's not true just for physical things, a house, a car, whatever it may be. It's not true just for careers or sports. Sports is probably another good example. Just two months ago, we watched the Winter Olympics, and last year we saw the Summer Olympics. And we think about the training and sacrifice that those athletes go through. Years and years to work up to that one point. And not just their time, but they're investing financially so that they can train at the best facilities with the best coaches. 
Some of them will sacrifice their friends and family, maybe even moving across the country to get what they want. You see this in soccer. As kids will leave their family, at least where we were living, in order to pursue that career and go live with a team and a club in order to develop their skills. People will sacrifice if they want it enough. It doesn't have to be sports. It could be status. It could be importance. Maybe it's even family. There's not much I wouldn't do for my children. We left Argentina for the sake of our family, for going a ministry, for going a lifestyle. Why? The honorable reason is because our parents, as parents, are called us to steward and shepherd our children, and that's what we wanted to do. I think more than just a biblical attitude, this is a godly attitude because that's what we do as parents. That's what all of us do. But we're not immune from making our family an idol. Most people will do more for their kids than they ever would do for Christ. And why? Because they've set their hearts on family, more on family than they have on Christ. Please understand I'm not decrying that we raise up our families. That is a call in scripture. We obey that. We shepherd our kids. We shepherd our spouses. But when their activities have supplanted our relationship with Christ or their relationship with Christ, we've made it an idol. If someone sets their heart on something, they will sacrifice a lot to achieve it. Maybe none of those examples resonate with you. Perhaps you haven't sacrificed to this level for your career or for physical possessions. Maybe for your own pride. I don't know. But I know there is something in each of our lives that we would give up that much for if we just took time to thoroughly and thoughtfully examine our lives. When someone's heart is set on something, they will endure a lot of sacrifice. But the call of this verse isn't to set our heart on many things. The call of this verse is for a believer's heart to be set on one thing, rather one person, the one who is above, Christ. So as our heart set on him maybe maybe not how do you know what are you willing to set aside for your relationship with your savior when you are in public are you willing to forgo the culture's opinion of yourself for the sake of your relationship with christ or are you more willing to conform yourself to the culture temporarily And doing what the scripture says is grieving the Holy Spirit, as it says, for the sake of temporary acceptance. Are you willing to set aside your valuable time, time that could be spent working on your property, or time that could be spent watching the news or reading a book in order to spend time with your Savior? If I can be so bold this morning and dare I say, probably offensive to some of you. I recognize that there are valid reasons for various things. But I will say that most of us in this room can't even be bothered enough to spend an extra hour 
of time to come to Sunday school on Sunday or come to a Wednesday night study. We will come when it pleases us to the things that we want to do, but to study the truth of the Lord and know him more intimately, that's when it's asking too much for us. If you think about most churches, and I have no idea what we've done here in the past, but I know most churches in the past had a Sunday night service. And in almost every church, that's gone by the wayside. Why? Because people don't show up. I know churches who still try, and they consider it a good night if they get five or six people. I'm not exaggerating on that. The call to willingly sacrifice ourselves for the one who sacrificed himself is too much for most professing believers today. The call in our text this morning then is to seek the things above. That is to set our hearts, set our hearts on the things above. Paul didn't make this up. He's not adding to God's word and adding his own expectations to what God has already said. He's simply repeating what Christ has already preached. Turn with me to Matthew 6. Matthew chapter 6. At this point in Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, we're still in the middle of this Sermon on the Mount, which stretches three chapters from Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. And what we have is this incredible sermon by the greatest preacher of all, by Christ. And in the middle of that, Christ begins to address those who are anxious and who are wondering about tomorrow and what's going to happen about their future. And then we come to Matthew 6.31, and Christ says, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And then it goes on. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Verse 33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You can seek all these other things, but what's most important is whether or not your heart is set on the kingdom of God and set on his righteousness. It's important to note here, as commentator Douglas Moo points out, that from our text in Colossians, Paul's not telling them to seek out their heavenly position and heavenly status. He's not telling them to find their position and to become saved. He's already seen that. Indeed, it says in our text that they have already been raised with Christ, past tense. If you have been raised with Christ. No, what he's saying here is that you've already been given your status in heaven. Now act like it. You already know Christ, so keep on seeking him. That's actually what the text says. It's not captured well in our translations. Most of us are say, seek the things above, but it's actually a progressive. Keep on seeking. It's not a one-and-done command here. It's not seek Christ today and forget him tomorrow. It's keep on seeking him continually. Keep on searching above all other things. 
Our lifestyle is one of constantly setting our hearts then upon the things above. How do we do this? By finding joy in the things above. In the original Greek text, once again, the the things that are above is written first. So the text actually reads, the things that are above seek. It's in the first position, the emphatic position, meaning it's trying to emphasize that point, to emphasize the things that are above. The things down here, here on earth, are merely temporary. They will pass away. But the things up there are permanent. If Christ is eternal, then we can trust indeed everything else up there is eternal if that's where he's at. And so his promises are eternal. His reign is eternal. What are the value of things in heaven if we aren't willing to seek them here? The gift of heaven is an eternity in the presence of Christ. And if we're not satisfied with him now, we're not going to be satisfied with him in heaven. The Jews understood the place described as above to be the place of heaven. Even today, when heaven is described, where is it at? Most people will say, above. We cannot discuss heaven without giving an indication to its location above us. But it's not that physical location that makes heaven so important and so wonderful. It's made wonderful by the fact that this is where Christ is. That Christ is seated at the right hand of God. To place Christ in heaven is to place Christ in the presence of God and at the throne of God. Psalm 11.4 from our call to worship this morning proclaims, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Through the prophet Isaiah 66, chapter 1, the Lord says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is a house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? One of the incredible aspects of Christ is that he indeed walked with men. And he walked for a time on this land, on this earth. He had a physical life just as anybody else. But we must remember that at one point he ascended to heaven. This is where he now resides. To leave Christ on earth is to ignore his deity. It ignores Paul's statement in Colossians 2.9 that says, In Christ the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We must not remember just his humanity here on earth. We must remember that Christ is God. According to Jewish tradition, the fact that Christ is seated implies that Christ is partaking in God's glory. It is only God who sits. All others are subordinate and they show their submission by standing. We think about a modern king or a modern queen and what happens. They're usually seated on their throne, but those around them are always standing and serving Thus Christ, though, is seated at the right hand of God. It indicates that Christ is ruling with God. It is a position of prominence and sovereignty. The author of Hebrews writes, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And yet in the psalmist, the psalmist who happens to be David in Psalm 110 
prefiguring Christ as the Lord says to my Lord, as God the Father is saying to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Most importantly, though, Christ's position as seated at the right hand of God actually draws attention to Christ, atoning attention, atoning work on the cross. It acts as a reminder of the death, burial, and resurrection, at which point Christ defeated the greatest weapon of Satan while appeasing the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. What does Christ's posture in heaven have to do with the cross? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, and just reading through verse 4 quickly. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is here in this text that we begin this discussion of God's law and the need for sacrifices. And it's noted that God's law is indeed good because it reflects the goodness of God. As we talked about on Wednesday night, transgressing the law of God is more than just violating the do's and don'ts of God. Because it reflects God's character, it is a violation and a rejection of God. And what are the consequences of that? Death. The sacrifices, then, are meant to atone for that death. Note verse 3, though. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So from here, we see the reference that these sacrifices occurred on an ongoing basis. There was an ongoing need for them because there was ongoing sin. didn't matter if there was one person or a billion people at this time. The sacrifice still needed to occur on an ongoing basis. And then we read the next verses. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said into the He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now we have Christ whose sacrifice was sufficient enough that no longer were the sacrifices needed on an ongoing basis. They weren't needed continually. 
once was enough. By Christ's work, all of God's wrath was appeased, and all who would come to Christ would be atoned for. But then I want you to look at this. Beginning in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until the enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. When Christ offered himself, he then sat down at the right hand of God. When we seek the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, we are seeking our salvation, our sanctification, and our sufficiency in Christ. That is to say, we are associating ourselves with Christ. And I think it's on that note that we need to end Because that's what I want you to think about this week. Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. There are various places in the world and various eras throughout history when it has been dangerous or more dangerous to be a Christian. But in Acts chapter 7, we are given the example of the very first martyr, After the killing of Christ in the Gospels comes the killing of Stephen in the book of Acts. The previous chapter, Acts chapter 6, tells us that Stephen, he'd just been chosen, and he was doing these great wonders and signs among the people. And then those who were part of the synagogue, the synagogue of freed men, there's a name for you, a fitting title as it is. And these freed men disputed Stephen. They stood against him. And eventually, those men would stir up others to stand up against Stephen as well. And then what they would do is seize him and bring him before a council. And in verse 10, it says, Despite not being able to withstand Stephen's wisdom and the spirit that was speaking, they still endeavored and still labored to silence him. And then we come to Acts 7, and in Acts 7, Stephen gives this powerful account of God's working throughout all of history, and he recounts for people everything that God has done. And by the end of the chapter, when they should be captivated by the work of God, they instead are enraged by the work of God. Acts 7.54 says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But in contrast to these people, in verse 55, it continues and says, But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Notice he's standing here, because he's about to receive Stephen. To which the people then responded by casting their stones. And while he's being beaten and bloodied, Stephen cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. (coughs) What does it look like for a person to set their heart on Christ? To seek the things above? It looks like one being murdered and martyred. 
And yet in the midst of that, what does Stephen do? He still fixates, not on that moment, but he fixates on his eternity that awaits him. Indeed, if a person has been raised with Christ, then the mind should be elevated to Christ. And it should be elevated above, elevated above the present conditions and our present circumstances to be with Christ. And so if we seek anything this week, let us seek the things above. Since we have been raised with Christ, let us raise our hearts to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are for your work. Grateful for who you are. Father, I pray that you have convicted us and convinced us this morning of your truth. May we be persuaded by your truth to align ourselves, to associate ourselves with your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. Regardless of what it may cost us, Father, I pray that we would come before you and and, and sacrifice ourselves for the sake of our relationship with you. May people know, indeed, that we are associated with you by how we portray that association. And so, Lord, help us to set our minds, to seek after the things that are above, for Christ is seated at your right hand. We pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.